This is Control Structure, episode 85 for April 25th, 2015. Big week two, everyone listening. I'm not sure what Chris had against big week two, everyone listening. It's weird. But thankfully, he's not here. Because I am your host, Andrew Bailey, and this is the other host, Stephen Orbis. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Steve. So before we get too far into this, I just want to let you know that this show does have show notes, so if you're not looking at this episode's page right now, go to thenexus.tv slash cs85 to see them. I'm not exactly sure if anyone listen is listening on iTunes or anything, but hey, drop us a line if you are. So, uh, yeah, we just went to the IHOP. Yes, we did. I had a stuffed uh, French, French toast, toast yeah. which... I said tasted like a donut, and it did. It had like a cream filling and lots of greasy salt and whatever, not salt, sugar. There, that's the word I wanted. On the, the outside and, and uh, strawberries and raspberries and stuff like that. It was it was pretty good. Yes, and because, you know, let's just go ahead and start this uh, food show off, you know, as we normally do. Um so, yeah, I just had, you know, normal French toast, but with uh, bananas and strawberries. So, um, I'm not exactly sure what I was exactly looking forward to going there, but yeah, it, it seemed pretty good. So, uh, oh yeah, by the way, if you haven't listened to our April Fool's Day show, uh, listen to it now, because it's awesome, and uh, yeah, you may not want to listen to this episode ever again. But hey, since you're still here, you know... We can go ahead and talk about interesting things. Well, I'm not sure if this is quite interesting, but uh, if you remember, Time Warner Comcast was about to be a thing, you know, or rather, more specifically, Comcast was trying to buy Time Warner Cable, and you know, this would probably make the largest uh, cable company in America even bigger. But uh, just uh, just today, or rather just yesterday, since this is the 24th, um, they walked away from it. Uh, apparently the government wasn't exactly talking to them about, like, specific points of the deal, which is generally bad for a merger because that means it probably won't go through. Uh, so, you know, uh, Comcast has posted a, you know, one of those, uh, optimist grams, I guess. So you said that the government wasn't uh, giving the details, uh, so is it something that has to be approved because they're kind of like considered a monopoly at that point in time? Is, is that what the deal is with that? Um, I'm not exactly sure what the rules are, but like when companies merge, like they have to go through like a, like a, a security and exchange commission review and probably a Department of Justice review, and because this would involve telecommunications, also the FCC. Um, so I'm not 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 exactly sh- read up and what sure is you know like on all the rules on this, but yeah, they need a government review to uh, go through with this. So uh, this, I say that this is a probably a very good thing because you know. Uh, like in the big picture, like there would be one less company to, you know, compete uh, with like uh, programming costs. And I'm not exactly sure what it would mean for the Internet. Uh, but then again, Comcast does own a significant chunk of Hulu. So uh, and I think like that was one of like one of their points that uh, 
when they merged with NBC back like four years ago, that uh, like control and management of Hulu was one of their conditions. And I think that might have been one of the points that uh, like the government that uh, the government was trying to bring up. So that the government wasn't liking the fact that they were controlling Hulu that much. Um, just like what they've done, you know, like, uh, decisions that they've made with regards to Hulu. Um, not just the fact that they own it, but, you know, what have they done with it? That kind of stuff. So, and, uh, you know, then again, you know, even though, you know, there's still just as many cable companies as there were, it doesn't really mean too much when for every place in America, you can only get one cable provider. Which is kind of a shame because that's how you would actually have competition in a real-life market if you could actually choose and say, I want this cable company or I want that cable company. I know at home I've uh, Comcast seems to be the only one that I can find that supports our area, so evidently you can't have choices there. So, I mean, like right here in this uh, press release here, um, I believe this is uh, Chairman and CEO Brian Roberts says, "Of course, we would like to have br- br- we would have liked to bring our great products to new cities." Well, I'm pretty sure nothing's stopping you from entering many of those. So, yeah, good luck with that. Raspberry, 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 raspberry. So now it's time for the pies of the week. Well, for a few weeks anyway. For a few weeks. Yeah, because there's like a few of these you dug up. Yes, I did say pies. So first up, we have the uh, pie. Yep, wrong was one. It, was it I was the weather say pie station? Juice. Yes, the weather station pie. So it turns out the oracle is. Very gracious and has handed out 1,000 Raspberry Pi station kits to schools in the UK. So, uh, by the way, this is like Oracle, the big database company? Yes, it was a very generous move. They gave 1,000 of these pies uh, to each of the schools uh, in the UK. So, on the Pi, it has like a uh, attachment board for it here that's showing it has near quality sensor, it has soil temperature probe, pressure, humidity, and that's all the sensors I'm seeing. So it says that uh, this is part of a goal to help teach uh, school kids more about programming skills and things like that. Even I'm thinking if one school, or if each school gets one pie, that may somewhat limit how many kids are using these pies, but still it's an interesting idea. Indeed. So, um, let's see, some of, some of the other uh, things that you found would sort of interact with this a little bit. That's true. The, the Pi Juice is another one, and uh, that's actually a battery for the Raspberry Pi that snaps on as a module on the back, and uh, supposedly it gives 24 hours of battery life to the Pi. Along with that, they also have a solar panel that you can plug in and, in theory, have infinite Pi life then that would carry on day to day. This is this is a, a pretty interesting concept because even at the battery 
you could do something like robot they they mentioned in their video they were showing that you could throw that on that or or maybe you could build a digital camera there's a lot of range of possibilities here that opens up what you probably could do yeah you know it, you know raspberry pi is just so small already i mean you could easily you know carry it around with you like you would you know any kind of camera Exactly. And the battery actually is pretty small, like in the videos, they snap it on the back of the Pi, and I'd say it's a bit bigger than a quarter of the Pi, just looking at like width and height yeah. of, of it, and it, it seemed pretty compact. For 24 hours, that's pretty nice battery time, really. And so, next up, we have the e-paper for the Pi, so you can actually attach a screen to the Pi, and uh see have e-paper that the pie could update so you could have like a uh, what i was thinking of is uh the furnace pie that i have attached to the wood smoky furnace. smoky yes smoky the smoky the pie <laughs> <laughs> smoky the pie has uh he could have a gauge out on the side of the furnace someplace and it could be this e-ink and so it would be very low power because you'd only have to power it to update the screen but you could show the temperature or something like that yeah, and right here it just, you know, has a clock and the temperature on it. And uh, it looks like this You just uses the GPIO pins. So. It's just like a board that snaps on the top of it. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the great concept with the pies is a lot of people have made these boards that you can just snap down on the header pins, and it's big enough that you can put some pretty interesting stuff onto those boards. Or even thinking back to the... Uh, the pie pie top that we talked about for this last episode, a few episodes again, yeah. go. Uh, you can just snap things in, and, and it's uh, relatively easy to make stuff work. So, and now for this episode's lol apple. <laughs> ben Farrell used to work at Apple, and uh, he just posted a uh, like an entire I don't know essay. On, uh, like, what actually happened there, like, the inside workings of, like, one of the biggest companies in the world right now. Um, so, it kind of feels like a dictatorship. Uh, you know, like, uh, pulling a line out of his uh, first paragraph here. I am free. It is, a, it is ironic that one of the world's largest companies, one that prides itself on innovation, creativity, and breaking the mold, operates on such a soul-limiting, entrenched dogma. It seemed like the bulk of his, of his argumentation was how he was harassed by management. Uh, like one example he was saying was when he was in a presentation, they're instant messaging him, telling him what to say, and then they're saying, hurry up, wrap it up, one minute, 30 seconds left, too long, wrap it up. Or another time he was saying, I believe it was when on his wedding day, someone was messaging him looking for some report. And then, then another time he said he was sick in the hospital and they email him and they're like, we need this report done now. And he's like sick and dying or something. And, yeah. and they're on him to get stuff done. And just kind of like people who didn't care about him and he had general, general dissatisfaction with management. Oh, and the other one I liked was uh, the... Oh, I lost it now. Uh, the where like the management was late for every meeting. Yes, that's the one. They're late for every single meeting, and the excuse was to test the employees to see how long it would take for someone to take initiative to I am the manager and see where he was. Yeah. 
So, uh, let's see. Sickness, family emergencies, and even weddings are given no respect. When I started my role, I missed one business trip as my wife was pregnant, fell down the stairs, and had to be hospitalized. This was listed as a performance issue on my record and brought up with, uh, brought up on a one-on-one with management as a major miss to my behalf. Uh, meetings at midnight were also commonplace as I was always asked to present something menial again to be seen. Uh, however, I wasn't, uh, even then I wasn't allowed to simply speak on my topic, but instead was fed scripts by management through instant messaging. Um, so yeah, apparently this guy was frustrated with the seemingly endless meetings, preparing for meetings, preparing for meetings, preparing for meetings, preparing for this huge big presentation, uh, that, you know, had to go off absolutely flawlessly. Um, but I'm pretty sure that there are plenty of examples of Apple presentations that have gone awry. So so was this guy, uh, like some sort of press, uh, person that would represent the company uh i am not sure i think he was uh like some like you know somewhere down below uh but yeah this is definitely not a place i would want to work at it sounds like they have the too much of the big company atmosphere there's just the managers don't maybe care per se about the people it's just another number type of scenario yeah so, uh, moving on, uh, do you want to, uh, like, really test the usability of your website? Uh, well, someone has uh, offered up his services uh, to basically pay him to get drunk and review your website. Uh, so, uh, one of the guys at Gizmodo uh, paid a hundred bucks to this guy uh, to do, you know, Gizmodo. And, uh, you know, it was pretty interesting, and uh, he... Uh, actually interviewed the guy a little bit and like initially he uh you know advertised this as like for a fifty dollar service he upped it to seventy five and later on and on to two hundred and fifty dollars uh and like I actually saw this on uh, hacker news uh apparently he also posted it on Twitter but uh he says that he was on the top for an entire day and number one for three hours the Prospective clients have been from all over the place, uh, received many requests ranging from sober work to people asking if they could be my intern. Uh, so, yeah, this is uh, rather, uh, you know, a genuinely unique idea in that, you know, he is, you know, as the day job, he is a user experience and graphic designer type person. Uh, so, you know, this is just something that he would, you know, like to do, you know, on the side, you know, for fun as a joke, almost. Uh, so, you know, he, uh, basically, you know, gets drunk and reviews a website and he did that for Gizmodo here. And, uh, you know, yeah, it seems that he praised the site for, you know, a very clean minimalistic design, but he couldn't figure out what this Kinja network or Kinja stuff is all about. Um, so apparently that's like the, uh, blogging software that Gizmodo and a few other sites use. Um, so yeah. Uh, did you have any thoughts on this? It's definitely an interesting concept and, uh, it doesn't seem like a sustainable business testing way though. If the guy was drunk all the time, he'd probably be dead eventually. <laughs> well, he, I believe he mentioned that he would only do this maybe twice a week. As, as a hobby. Yes. So, Yeah. Uh, so yeah, everyone has JavaScript, right? 
Well, even if they do, uh, like there are differing stages in the process that can fail, and you know, even during the process where they don't. So, you know, one of the most, uh, you know, how should I say, one of the most common failure modes of JavaScript is that it just doesn't load. Uh, and even while you're loading JavaScript, you uh, don't have it. So, you know, this is all about, you know, progressive enhancement and stuff. So, like, right now I'm running no script on this, and, like, there's no scripts running at all. Uh, I enable one of, uh, I believe, yeah, the edge fonts, and suddenly I have fancy text. But even without it, I could still read it and get all the content on the page. You know, this is how the web should be. You know, even if you strip away, like, a lot of the fancy stuff, like pretty much everything but the HTML itself, you should be able to get the gist of the page. This kind of ties back to uh, this week at work. I, I had some training on HTML and, and CSS, and they touched on JavaScript some. And the trader had mentioned how uh, he's worked for some oil companies that would get sued on a regular basis by people that would access their site and claim that they could not, they were discriminated against because they couldn't access uh, the site because there are JavaScript features that weren't available in the non-JavaScript version, and so their whatever software they're using for their disability wasn't allowing them to see that. And I guess it was a significant amount of money that was daily happening uh, for these these uh, companies that they were getting sued for. And so that was a big deal. They had to do any functionality that happened client-side. They also had to have something that could happen server-side so that these people that supposedly were being discriminated against wouldn't be discriminated against. So uh must have been a pretty important big oil company there. Yeah, it sounded very similar to the troll patents. I guess uh state uh like government websites have issues with that too of people yeah. complaining and uh it I doubt it was very legitimate most of the complaints was the impression I got that it was basically troll patents. Or not troll <laughs> it was like troll, troll complaints. Yeah, it was troll complaints. There we go. So, yeah, stuff happens, but, uh, yeah, your blog should not require JavaScript to read anything. So, like mine. Who knew? So, uh, we've uh, touched on this uh, before, uh, but there was apparently a company going around claiming that it owned the patent for podcasts and was uh, suing podcasters for money, uh, but... They very quickly realized that this was a bad idea because podcasters do not have much money. Uh, I can back that up for you. Uh, but it appears that our worries are now largely over because after a year and a half, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, uh, has, you know, finally come through their campaign against this podcasting patent, so called, uh, in, has ended, uh, with the patent being invalidated. So this is, uh, from, Personal Audio LLC, uh, which apparently formerly had the patent on a system for disseminating media content representing episodes in a serialized sequence, which kind of sounds like a broadcasting network, like in general, like not just a podcasting network, but like, you know, like NBC or CBS, like, you know. I, I, I agree. It did give the sense of because it specifically mentioned episodes and such, 
And so if the patent, what, it's 1996. Yeah. I know for a fact TV episodes were happening well before 1996. So it's actually, in a sense, an odd patent, even from that perspective. Yeah, the the EFF relied on two key patent examples of earlier technology to beat the patent. Uh, One was CNN's Internet Newsroom, which the patent office judges found fulfilled the claims of having episodes, an updated compilation file, and a predetermined URL for the compilation file. So, yeah... You know, there's prior art for, you know, pretty much every single idea that you could come up with in like an hour or so. So the uh, interesting idea I was thinking about earlier was, uh, so it says they actually took CBS to trial and won $1.3 million. So now that they've invalidated their argument, I think what should be right is they should have to give that money back uh, because... It was proven to be wrong that they weren't right, and so they should have to give that back. Although I think that also requires some legal action back on whoever took the money. But I'm not sure about that, because I am not a lawyer. So uh, let's move from uh, podcast to uh, video. So uh, VP9, it's the sort of updated version of VP8 that's used in... I think it's called WebM uh, that you know Google has. Uh, so VP9 has been used by YouTube for a few months, and it's allowed everyone to bump up a full quality level compared to H.264. So this is you know this is essentially a more optimized codec uh, than uh, H.264, and they've been you know working on VP8, and VP9 is just the set of improvements to that. So, you know, they go over how, uh, uh, like how many users in various countries have upped a quality level because of this. Uh, so, you know, this is, you know, mostly, you know, like developing countries, you know, Turkey, Mexico, Brazil, India, those kinds of places. So this would be people that had been watching in low definition, but then realized their connection speed was fast enough for this uh, standard definition? Or rather the bandwidth required was reduced such that they could bump up a quality version. So, And they also go on about uh, opening the door to the 4K resolution. I believe they uh, made some noise recently about 4K at 60 frames a second. So they're boasting... That uh, you know, VP9 with its efficient uh, video coding allows them to do this. So, can you even see video at 60 frames a second? I thought 30 was like the cutoff of in around 30, anyways. Uh, that's generally the case, but in video games, you can definitely tell the difference between 30 and 60. It is true in video games, you can see the difference. But you know, then again, that's that's also because uh, like when a graphics card draws out something that it's an ins- a single instant in time, whereas video, it shows some motion blur with it. So that has shown to be, uh, to help the smoothness a little bit. That's very true, because if you pause a video, before you pause it, it looks clear. But if you pause a video, it looks blurry on one frame. Typically, there's frames in there that are very blurry looking. Yeah, it's, it's a trick that your mind plays on you. So... Hey, uh, speaking about video games, uh, here's the Electronic Frontier Foundation again uh, telling video game publishers, 
uh, standby for garbage collection. Is he going to back up? Uh, he hasn't for a while. Nope. So, uh, anyways, uh, the EFF is telling the, uh, was it the Electronic Software is- Association that, uh, you know, no preserving abandoned video games even for museums and archives uh, because quote hacking is illegal uh so apparently the entertainment software association doesn't want anyone to restore functionality in older games that are no longer supported by the publisher uh because they believe that this will promote piracy uh because apparently you need to hack the game to enable uh you know you to play it afterwards uh, and also hacking is associated with piracy, and piracy is bad. That's a bit of a, a, a illogical assumption there. Just because something's associated with something does not make that something that's associated with the something. Yeah, this is, I don't know, like a slippery slope argument, maybe? Or like some other like Latin term that is a fallacy argument or something. That I probably would recognize, but could not identify. Yes, it, that, it definitely does seem like it should be some category for it as an argument. It's basically saying that just because you do this, it's, it's going to lead to the piracy. So, They're not saying that it's actually wrong in a sense. They're just in order, order to lead in a bad place. Yeah, it's not surprising uh, that the ESA, along with the MPAA and RIAA, have written to the Copyright Office to oppose this exemption uh, to Section 1201, which is the uh, like the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Uh, Section 1201 forbids uh, uh, how do they phrase it? Like bypassing DRM or circumventing DRM. Uh, and it's often used by entertainment industries to prevent copyright infringement. Uh, to not just do that, but to control markets and lock out competition. They say that modifying games to connect to a new server, or to avoid contacting any server at all, after the publisher's support ends, thereby letting people continue to play the games that they have paid for, will somehow destroy the video game industry. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. That's kind of like the, the key thing here, is there's people that want to keep playing their older games... And they're trying to shut them down. And like you said, they paid for those games. Those are their games. They should be allowed to yeah. play play them. So yes, they say that uh, the blanket ban will send a message that hacking, an activity closely associated with piracy in the minds of the marketplace, is lawful. Uh, imagine the havoc that could result if people believed that hacking was ever legal. Well, of course, it is legal in most circumstances, and most of the programmers that create games for these companies uh, undoubtedly learn their craft by tinkering with existing software. If hacking, broadly defined, were actually illegal, there would likely be no video game industry as it is today. Nor would there likely be other inventions such as light bulbs and many other not necessarily technology inventions that were in a sense hacking of people just putting pieces together and making stuff. I disagree. I say the light bulb is technology. It is technology. I was thinking digital electro <laughs> technology, and I know you're gonna say it's on and off, but you can dim nope. a light bulb. It's analog. Okay, let let me flip over to Chris mode. That's racist. You're a Chrisist. <laughs> So, 
this uh, debate over, you know, like modifying uh, software to contact different servers uh, recently reached a tipping point earlier this month with NBA 2K14. This is a game that was released back in November 2013, and it has a feature where you could, uh, like, play through your career, like as a coach, I guess, um, and save your progress on, like, the publisher's online server. Uh, Well, earlier this month, they decided to shut that down. Of course, I think they gave maybe 30 days notice, uh, but this caused, like, a lot of uproar because, like, any uh, save games you had on their servers uh, were gone. You would need to restart offline to and progress back to that point to get that back. So, in response to enormous user outrage, uh, 2K Sports has restored the servers uh, and has promised that all games in the future will get at least 18 to 27 months of online support. Uh, so, yeah... This is why I'm kind of skeptical about Steam. Uh, you know, even though they claim that, uh, uh, like they have, like, patches for all their games that, you know, in the event of shutdown, they will, you know, release all of these, uh, and, like, allow you to download your games and play them without Steam. It's, it's true. Uh, I guess, sorry, jumping to the, uh, article you had Andrew towards the end about uh, the the yeah, the ancestry the ancestry dot com. In their case, the shutdown was evidently fast, or something happened there, and so they only gave the images that was archived. We'll, we'll talk about that. Okay, later. we can do that. So, uh, hey, what about C Sharp? Ah, so up on GitHub, Microsoft has a list of uh, it's they called it a work list of features for C Sharp. And it's not an official list in a sense that there's necessarily going to be co- things coming from it. On there, they say, please don't inf- infer anything from the final shape of C-Sharp 7 or future future versions. The list is a tracking mechanism for work, not a description of the outcome. We have a long, ways, long way to go yet. And so on here, they have uh, various topics of things they're interested in putting into C-Sharp 7 and articles or pages rather of people that from Microsoft have the proposals and how they would work and it's a it's interesting one of the things that they're talking about is a named tuple uh, that would allow you in your method that you're returning to actually give a name so today if you return a tuple in C sharp, you just have I think it's field one, field two, and then so on. It sounds so, like Python. Yeah, so it's it's not all that descriptive. So it's like you pass back the width and the height of some object, and then you get, you have to access it in name one, name two, which is why I typically don't use tuples in C sharp because it doesn't help me outside of the context of the method to know what it is. But with your name tuples, you could actually uh, specify that hey, this is the width, and this is the height that I'm sending out of the method. And you can effectively effectively return uh, two things or more from the method. And uh, as to the question of why you wouldn't just use the out parameter, you can't use out parameters in your asynchronous method calls, and so it is actually necessary in some cases when you might want to use the tuple. Another interesting feature I was looking at, the... They're talking about adding a non-nullable 
type and safe reference uh, types. And so the concept behind those is you're non-nullable. You wouldn't allowed to make it nullable. So presumably you wouldn't need to do a null check on that since it can't be null. And then the safe reference type, the compiler is actually going to not let you compile the code if it's not doesn't have a null check on the object before you would make use of it. And so this was interesting. It looks like one that they probably have a good shot at putting in because the only things that they needed to do was basically change some compiler checks. And But the core functionality of how C-sharp would work would remain largely the same, but you just need the compiler add-on. Yeah, it sounds, sounds kind of interesting. And like I know that I think it was in C-sharp 6... Like they had that question mark period operator? Yes, yes. That was a uh, null check that they're adding so you can do your null check inline with that question mark. It looks like a really nice feature. Yeah. I, I can't wait to use that one. Like, like why on earth is that not the default? <laughs> yeah, that, that would just kind of make sense because that's probably your most common laziness error that happens in coding is how you didn't check null and then this thing blows up because you forgot to check null because you're trying to traverse down your object graph and like you didn't check your first step which was null so when you go down it's like this dot that dot this other thing uh will explode because you didn't do a null check on the first one even though you might have done one on the second yep I, I like the whole concept, like the non-nullable thing, so it's make sure that you never have that set to null, and uh, so, does that compiler check it? It seems like that's really useful and powerful of what you can do with but that. But then again, there are probably some obscure corner cases where that will not work for you. It's hard to say. Those those cases always come out in the, in, in the using of it. You're like, oh, we didn't think about that. So uh, this... Uh, happened several months ago, or at least it started several months ago, uh, the TrueCrypt audit. So we've been going back and forth a little bit on this, and it was quiet for the longest time, but it has finally been completed. And uh, I guess like one of the guys behind this uh, like actually wrote a blog post on it. And uh, so you can go ahead and read the full report on this. And the the short of it is that, you know, TrueCrypt appears to be a very well-designed piece of cryptography software. The audit found no evidence of deliberate backdoors or of any severe design flaws that will make the software insecure in most instances. Uh, like, pretty much, like, the worst bug that they found was with the Windows installer uh, with the random number generator. Uh, Windows uh, has a cryptography API, and the TrueCrypt installer would use that. Uh, apparently, in some very rare instances, the cryptography API would fail to properly initialize. And when this happens, TrueCrypt should stop and catch fire. But instead, it just accepts the failure and continually generates keys. Uh, but uh, that should be okay because it still gathers uh, entropy from other sources. Uh, so it's it's not like the end of the world, but it is something that should be fixed in any uh, forks. Um, so uh, like another uh, vulnerability that they found are cache timing attacks, 
which shouldn't really be a concern unless you're uh, doing this on a shared uh, system or in any environment where an attacker can run code on the system. Uh, but that should not be the case in most, you know, computers. You know, would only really happen on, like, servers or something. Or maybe even mainframes, but I'm not aware of any mainframes that would run TrueCrypt. Um, but yeah, it looks like it's all good. So th this is very interesting because one of the things when TrueCrypt, uh, the developers stopped developing and uh, basically gave it up and produced the version that was then read-only, uh, one of the things people had speculated was maybe this uh, audit had scared them because there was something bad in the software that uh, was a backdoor or something and it wasn't actually very good. And uh, so now this this proves that and shows that it actually is good software and there must have been some other cause for the developers to just quit it. Um, I have heard that they just didn't want to do it anymore, so... Which I suppose is a, a, a reason to stop doing things because you don't feel like it. Yep. So everyone's got to move on sometime. So and now for some appreciate, uh, let's appreciate Audacity for the moment. Uh, they recently released uh, version 2.1.0, uh, I believe it was maybe about three weeks ago. Uh, so someone took this opportunity to uh, interview the team behind it. Uh, so uh, like the one of the big features for uh, this version is a improved noise reduction feature so you know you're hearing this you know after it's been processed through that and a few other filters uh, but uh, like uh, one of the things that they wanted to do was increase the efficiency of like real-time effects processing uh, then later on like one of their long-term goals is uh, better MIDI like MIDI support or MIDI support I'm not sure exactly sure how you pronounce that acronym I have no idea how it's pronounced uh, like the musical instrument stuff, um, and maybe also a user interface update. Because, you know, one of the strongest points of Audacity, like back, what, 10, 12 years ago, is that, you know, it's a pretty simple interface. You press the big record button, and it starts recording stuff indefinitely. That, that's very true. That is one of the best strengths of Audacity. Just think about open source software. Like if you think of G uh, GIMP, I've been kind of... GIMP. GIMP. I, I've been uh, playing with that some recently, and it's it's good software, but it's not exactly easy to use, and that's kind of true of a lot of open source software. Sometimes it's not super intuitive. I'd say the vast majority of open source software is not intuitive to use. Uh, but, you know, over the past even eight years, things have gotten a lot better. This is true. Um, you know, like, you know, Ubuntu got mom-proof back, like, what, five years ago? And I, you know, even put it on, you know, my parents' computer. And everything miraculously has worked 
quite well. Yeah, they've done good work like with the package manager. Now it's actually easy to find and install programs. I remember way back when uh, playing with Linux and having to use the package manager from the command line and it, things didn't work well. Like It was easy for things to break. Then once I, the, once I remember trying to compile a uh, program that I downloaded and it just was not working. I mean, since then I, I've, I've learned how to do that, but uh, that was after I went to college and took a class and everything. So that helped a lot. And, but by default out of the box, it's not exactly easy to compile programs. Yeah. And uh, let's see. Yeah. It's kind of sad that you need to go to and take a class in order to use some of this stuff. Uh, but um, yeah, like, you know, as you said, you know, upgrading, a uh, few things, you know, I always hate it when x.org breaks. I hate you. Uh, so, uh, if unfortunately, we don't have any uh, podcast feedback this week. Uh, but if you would like to give us some feedback, please do so on the podcast page. Uh, so, uh, don't forget that today is International Backup Awareness Day. And uh, as uh, alluded to earlier, uh, the story about Ancestry.com. Uh, uh, apparently back maybe about 15 years ago or so, like before Facebook, uh, Ancestry.com essentially started a social network. Uh, granted, it was uh, like sort of, you know, closed a little bit because you actually had to pay money in order to join and use this. Uh, but it recently shut down uh, last September. And, you know, they gave, uh, you know, they said, oh, yeah, you'll be able to export everything, like photos, correspondence, and, you know, like all this stuff that they uh, put on that site. Uh, so, like, uh, and it gives a story about uh, Tom the Tomato, which you found pretty interesting. Uh, but uh, so the manager of the account uh, downloaded a 750-some megabyte file, a zip file, that supposedly contained all of our collected correspondence, photos, like everything they had put on the site. Uh, but she didn't look at it right away because apparently she was pretty busy. Uh, and when I finally got around to opening the archive, uh, you know, long after the My Family Service had gone to the great hereafter, uh, uh, the aunt was horrified to find nothing but photos. More than a decade of written correspondence was missing. Uh, so, you know, this was pretty important because, you know, this was supposedly, you know, about family and, you know, like all those, you know, kind of family memories that, you know, these people have died and this service that all this data had gone into died also. So it's kind of like taking a box of family letters and burning them. Yes, exactly. So what's kind of ironic about this, I'm trying to find the the, the quote in there. Some places it says what their, their slogan was. Uh, oh, there we go. So it said, uh, the homepage, and before this shutdown, it said the homepage had said, unlimited storage space and site safe technology. Keep all of your family memories safe and secure no matter what. Yeah, it looks like it didn't survive the yes. shutdown. So tying back to the uh, Steam and the possibilities of them shutting down, they say they have a plan, and maybe they do have a plan, but uh, this demonstrates that companies that shut down don't always follow through as perhaps they promised. They promised, hey, we'll give you the content, we'll give you the pictures, and uh, whatever the third one was, 
and uh, they didn't. So um, that's why Ancestry's decision not to give back all the data still doesn't make sense. It was certainly possible to export it properly. One of my family's competitors smelled the opportunity when the closure was announced and built its own tool to scrape the data, including discussions that my and other families lost for $70. The problem was you had to sign up for it while my family was still alive. It didn't work for those of us who realized that our family memories had been erased only after the site was closed. Um, so a former software engineer told me that he was forced to preserve his own family discussions by manually saving every page as a PDF, a task he finished the last day before the site went down. If I had known that we were going to lose our own records, I would have done the same. So Sounds like a very painful way to save up information. So, you know, thankfully, you know, if you have a Google account and lots of data in Google, they provide something called takeout that, you know, allows you to download pretty much everything from every service they have. Uh, hi, Mom, how are you doing? Uh, so, yeah, it turns out that the, I hope by now, I have been informed that the tickets for my uh, European trip have been uh, placed and ordered. Uh, so, yes, if you haven't uh, realized it, or maybe I haven't said it on on a podcast yet, but in September I will be taking a trip over to Germany, and I'll be there for you know like maybe two weeks or so. But yeah, uh, I hope to have fun, and that was one of the uh, uh, one of the reasons that I got a very nice camera recently. So uh, yeah, I'll be taking nice of uh, lots of nice pretty pictures. Um, so yeah, we're. If you might have noticed that this podcast released a little bit early, and I'm not exactly sure why you wanted to do it early, but it came at a good time because uh, next Tuesday, Broken Age Act Two will be coming out on uh, April 28th, and I plan to, uh, you know, play as much of it as I can, uh, as fast as I can. I believe, uh, you know, I think I. I think I said once about it that, you know, I was, you know, the bastard that played through it all the way and was not contributing to the wiki. Um, but, uh, yeah, this this uh, first part came out uh, in January of last year, so this has been a while in coming. And uh, if those of you who remember that uh, back when Kickstarter was a nobody site and nobody cared what was on it, that, uh, you know, Double Fine, you know, did a campaign for a point-and-click adventure game, and that's what pretty much put Kickstarter on the map. Uh, not just for video games, but for other things as well. Uh, so, you know, I'm definitely looking forward to the conclusion of this uh, point-and-click adventure game. So was Broken Age a famous game before the Kickstarter, and that's no, this how is, they brought fame th- to the Kickstarter? This is a completely original game. So, uh, done by... I uh, forget his name... Um, uh, somehow I'm, I'm remembering the guy from uh, David Letterman. Uh, he has a, a pretty similar name, uh, Tim Schafer. Uh, Tim Schafer was uh, like the game designer for a lot of LucasArts games uh, back in the 90s. Uh, like uh, 
Uh, I believe it was uh, Monkey Island, the Tales of Monkey Island. I've heard of that one. I think we talked about that one once in the podcast. Yes. Uh, apparently, uh, Tim Schafer was one of the uh, main guys behind that game. And uh, I believe it was Grim Fandango. Um, so, you know, he's, he's a guy that is all about the point-and-click adventure games. He uh, unfortunately cannot pitch a game idea to a publisher to save his life. Uh, so that's why he went to Kickstarter and uh, you know raised money there. So he uh, you know raised like what several million dollars there, and you know made this a very nice game. So I will be enjoying that. Uh, what are your plans? So my plans, going uh, back up, back up home to be with my family after being down here at work for a few days for the training, and then our uh, sprint into sprint. Uh, review here this today and then on Tuesday I'm planning on going to play volleyball instead of doing the podcast so I guess it worked out good for good for both of us yes so I believe that's it so have a good one you too you